We are being told to choose between the left and right brain, between studying out and engineering, between creative and analytical thinking. Our society tells us that art and business are not connected. But what if society is wrong? What if it misleading us? The good news is that understanding what art is can bring us to a new revelation. Art does matter in innovation, technology and entrepreneurship. And with the help of this podcast and its guests, you as well will learn that art is not an object. Art is a mindset. You are listening to the Artian Podcast with me, Nir Hindi. Good afternoon, listeners, and thank you for joining us at the Artian Podcast. And today we're actually saying hello from Tel Aviv. And today I have with me Ilon Ganor, serial entrepreneur, and in a second you will hear what else he is doing in his life. But before that, Ilon, first of all, thank you for joining us at our podcast. Thank you for having me, Nair. Pleasure, as usual. So I want you to take a moment to introduce yourself to our listeners. Well... Uh, by profession, I'm a medical doctor. I graduated at Tel Aviv University a long time ago. I'm not going to say how long because people will know how old I am. After that, after my army service as a physician, I uh, switched to become a serial entrepreneur. Serial because I created a few companies, startups. Some of them were uh, very successful in various areas specifically in the medical field and internet-related companies. So can you share with us some of your business ventures? Because you stand behind one of, I think, I uh, would say iconic companies, the mid-90s in, in Israel. You know, today you and I were talking over WhatsApp, and that is basically using a technology called VOIP, which stands for Voice Over Internet Protocol. I have to admit, proudly, humbly, but proudly, Uh, my uh, company, uh, not just mine, I was uh, one of a few, called Vocaltech, was the first company ever inventing and developing voice over internet protocols. The initial product was called Internet Phone. It was back in, uh, started in February of 1995. We released a product at the time that was called Internet Phone, uh, which enabled people to use their computers at the time to speak over the internet network uh, with each other through uh, the sound cards that were in the PCs. Uh, what's interesting maybe to mention that it was very early on because I've checked recently how many subscribers were on the internet overall in February of 96. <laughs> can, you, can you guess how many? Today we have, what, 4 billion or 5 billion? Or... There were only 16 million people on the internet Getting on the internet was very tough at that time. It wasn't easy, technically. Uh, I mean, if you wanted to get on the internet, you had to be quite technical yourself in order to know how to use anyway. So this company, which name? Vocaltech. Uh, Vocaltech was the first company who is uh, being accredited for being the first VOIP uh, company ever. And this is also your first company that you IPO'd at the Nasdaq, correct? That is correct. And you had... You were involved in different ventures, and some of them, if I recall correctly, is also in developing some of the first HIV uh, tests. That is correct, too. That is way before. It's earlier. That was a company called Viroval, uh, which was Swiss-based, by the way, with laboratories, the scientific laboratories in Gothenburg in Sweden. 
uh, with a group of Swedish scientists, virologists. That company was the first company ever, in 1987, by the way, which developed an HIV diagnostic markers and tests for the detection of HIV. HIV, uh, in 1987, it was the beginning of the, that uh, plague. It started a bit earlier, but in 1987, it was really an outcry because uh, many people got infected, people died, and there was no way of uh, testing if somebody had, uh, had gotten the disease. And this was the first company ever to use synthetic peptides. What does that mean? It meant that since in uh, the ability to develop uh, synthetic peptides was uh, developed, the scientists had uh, basically taken portions of the virus itself and uh, synthesized it in the lab to see if that portion that they did actually reacted. And sure enough, they succeeded quite uh, rapidly in within six to eight months to uh, find a certain peptide named GP glycoprotein 41. I can proudly say to you now, again proudly, humbly but proudly, <laughs> that every AIDS test today, 2019, used by any diagnostic company worldwide, uh, whether Abbott or uh, all of them, they're all using that GP41 peptide that we were the first to develop. The reason they're all using it is because, now, number one, it's good. Uh, number two, they don't need to pay anything because the patents had already okay. expired since then. Okay, so you did the R&D already for some of the biggest uh, companies. And we sold it at the time successfully also commercially to Pharmacia, uh, which later merged with Upjohn, a big pharmaceutical company in Sweden. So the Vocaltech was uh, one of the first companies you IPO'd, and you actually IPO'd another one. Obviously, you have a lot of experience in the world of entrepreneurship. And part of being an entrepreneur is actually the ability to challenge the status quo, like you did with HIV, trying to find a solution, like trying to create the first internet phone in 95. And I'm wondering, what drove you to challenge the status quo in the different companies you have? That is a tough question. I am not sure if I could say or quote specifically a specific driver that uh, drove me to challenge a specific area. It's not as if I uh, came to the idea that I wish to challenge the world telephony system, the telecom environment, in order to create telephony or global telephony, which will be cheaper than the others. Or the same applies to the idea in the HIV or AIDS area. It's not that I had a goal which I set for myself and went ahead to try to find. It was more of a coincidence that came out uh, as a consequence of... Uh, something that I probably have, which is a serious curiosity and interest in futuristic directions. I was always fascinated by the future, by where are we going. And uh, when you are uh, all the time on the edge and uh, reading and, and being interested in different 
items and fields uh, that are moving forward, then suddenly you have a situation where two fields which are seemingly not related to each other, they merge. And when that happens, then uh, something new is happening. So it's kind of a creating connections between the unconnected fields or seemingly unconnected fields. Right. I can give you one example. There are plenty of examples. A good example is photography. If you look at the camera as we know it, the analog camera, it's uh, suppose this is the formal or the normal. If you look at uh, Google or Wikipedia or um, anywhere, historical books, uh, photography was invented in 1837. Basically, it brought two disciplines from uh, science to a single box, chemistry and physics. The physics dealt with the optical part, the use of the camera obscura, that was known since the early days of Leonardo da Vinci and even earlier than that, where you took a box with a two with a hole in it and uh, the ray light, I mean light rays came into the box and were projected on the back side of the camera. Or the, or the, it's not the camera yet. When the moment came and a certain scientist realized that in chemistry you take a silver nitrite and uh, it turns black when exposed to the sun, when exposed to light. So if you take that and you put it on a glass plate and you will uh, portray the image that is coming through the camera obscura, here you have an image, here you have a photo. These are the first photos. This is 1837. What's interesting is that chemists, you know, scientists that were in the chemistry area, did not know the optical side. And physicists that for hundreds of years knew about the physics of it, they didn't know about the chemical side. Once these two things came together, bingo. These are two disciplines merging together to create something entirely new. We'll speak camera. about this uh, separation between disciplines uh, uh, later. So, you know, it's kind of, obviously, it's not necessarily what, drove you, to, what ch- uh, drove you to change the status quo, but it's rather more your interest in the future and connecting unconnected fields. And obviously, you know, you're an experienced entrepreneur and you had different uh, companies. And I always say that entrepreneurship is a way of living. We are living in an era that everyone wants to be an entrepreneur. And we see companies that encouraging entrepreneurial mindset. And I often think that people see entrepreneurship as a job or as a title. And I claim that it's a way of living. And as such, it obviously includes ups and downs. And since you were involved in so many kind of companies and ventures, I'm interested to, to ask you, what are the two or three beautiful memories that you have from your entrepreneurial uh, ventures? That's a tough question. I have many. It's hard to pinpoint. The life of an entrepreneur, a true entrepreneur, is built up of ups and downs, of uh, very high points, To some very low points. The distance between the high point and the low point sometimes is 24 hours. It's really it's a, it's a roller coaster trip. It's a travel which is not an easy one because you're emotionally bouncing between the highs and the downs. Obviously, if you want to pinpoint the 
most people, probably including myself, would pinpoint the high points because... Uh, so can you, can, can you give us one or two points? I mean, if I were you, I would probably pinpoint one of them that IPO'd my company and I don't know if you rang the bell, but I would love to ring the bell if they do it today. Uh, back well, then. they do it. And uh, I'll jump straight to the ringing the bell. I was invited once <laughs> uh, to, in, indeed, to the NASDAQ to ring the bell. It was the Israeli consulate because we took the company public in, not at the IPO, but uh, a few years later. And uh, for some reason, I didn't show up at that morning and I did not <laughs> ring the bell, which was a big uh, screw up on my part. So this is a bit funny. <laughs> but uh, it's the first time I shared this information. I never told anyone because I was quite ashamed of uh, not showing up for <laughs> such an important event. It also makes you kind of a uh, very unique uh, that you are invited, but you uh, forgot to uh, go. Yeah, yeah, not exactly forgot to go, but I didn't go. Never mind. The point, if I have to try and pinpoint, it's obviously, the, as I said, the high points, which we remember better, but there were also low points. Uh, so let me go into specifics. We tried with our developers at VocalTech uh, to develop the product, which was an uh, internet phone. Initially, we developed it over local area networks. Uh, so initially, we showed the first product on the Novell system with uh, two computers connected to each other uh, with cables, really. And uh, we showed how you speak from one computer to the other. This was in 1993, in uh, May of 1993, in a trade show in Atlanta, in uh, the U.S. In '95, we showed it over IP, which is uh, basically a wide area network and not a local area network. Before that, we did a lot of uh, testing in the lab. We had a beta tester, which was a professor at Cambridge in, in England, in the computer uh, science uh, department of Cambridge. The very first time, our company was very small and poor, money-wise. So we didn't even have our own connection to the internet, not even a 16-meg connection. So uh, our friends at a very large company today, Checkpoint, they had uh, more money and they had their own 64-meg uh, connection to the internet because they were developing a product for the internet as well. And they, when more or less they were finishing the day work at 7 p.m., 7, 8 p.m. or even later, they allowed us to come and test our upcoming internet phone on their network. And, uh, so being so frugal one day, and resourceful. So uh, they had more resources and they were very nice with us. Uh, they were developers that were very friendly and, and good friends of our developers. And that's how the connection was made. So they allowed us to use their uh, laboratory. And uh, I remember the first time we tried our internet phone to, uh, in order to speak, we sent the software to that professor in Cambridge. So one evening, 8, p 8 or 9 p.m., we're sitting there. And we are, for the first time ever, trying to use the internet phone. And, uh, hello there, can you hear me? 
and out from the speaker in a poor quality voice comes the answer in a British accent by that professor. That was a real moving moment. Exciting. It was exciting. It was like, the, you know, the first telephone call, like a famous uh, call from, by uh, Alexander Graham Bell between his office and Boston. I mean, there's a very famous story about that. So this was a moving moment. I remember that very well. Did you have like after 24 hours, like maybe down or can you remember no, one I down? No, I don't remember a down after this one. Uh, we had plenty of downs along the way. And those were usually when we were getting close to, you know, using our resources nearly to the most and uh, having to raise additional capital or... Uh, Uh, moving with an uh, investor along the path of uh, an investment into the company. And the negotiation goes very well forward. And in the very last moment, uh, things explode in your face and the deal doesn't go through. Uh, and those were... So, so what do you do in that uh, case? <laughs> you nearly commit suicide. Of course not. <laughs> of course not. But believe me, that's a, a, a real low. It's I a do. real low. And what do you do? First of all, you have uh, to relax a day or two after this terrible uh, downturn. And then you are reshuffling uh, uh, your own cards and uh, rethinking. And you keep on uh, uh, working hard in order to get to the next investor until you find the one that will invest. Obviously, you are very close to the red line. And to the red zone where your company might go bankrupt. Yeah. And you know, the, the bad thing about this entire entrepreneurship and the startup uh, high-tech area is that I am sure that there are very good companies with excellent products that indeed went down, did go bankrupt, although they had a phenomenal product. And uh, investors, which are obviously less... Uh, futuristic or less uh, brilliant uh, not all of course there are some brilliant investors too but there are some that didn't understand and let them go uh, down but uh, didn't have the patience and, and they, or didn't have the patience uh, or so forth so uh, this is really as I said the term roller coaster suits very well here okay so for the entrepreneurs uh, that listening over here if you have a bad day or bad situation take one or two days to relax and recover and you go again on this ride what connected us is not only that you are a entrepreneur one other aspect of your profile is that you also an artist and at the age of 56 you left what you're doing to study art that's a brave decision And I'm very interested to hear how did you come about that, like leaving everything at the age of 56 and going to study art? Well, it's not exactly uh, just like that. It starts earlier. Since I was a kid, I loved the movies. I loved always to read a lot, and I loved the movies. And uh, many, many times in my life I said that my dream, my wish is... That when I will get to the age of 50, I want to retire from everything I do and go make movies. That was my dream. And uh, I fulfilled, maybe not, uh, more or less what I said because I didn't leave everything I do at 50 because it wasn't possible. I left everything I do more or less at 56, which was 2006. I uh, happened to... Uh, Get involved through a friend of mine who invited me to join him 
in a certain workshop with a very famous Israeli artist, photographer, Adines, who is, uh, uh, whose work is a work of art, which is uh, very known internationally. He's one of the most successful artists in Israel. He does uh, photography, uh, which is uh, stage photography. So I went, joined a certain workshop, 12 meetings. This is, these are stills photography, and I got hooked. I loved it. I just loved it. After uh, these uh, 12 uh, meetings, took three months or so uh, at that specific workshop with Adines, who later became a good friend and a mentor for me, I wanted more. 12 lessons, basically, were not enough. I was eager to learn more. So uh, with his recommendation, I found another mentor, which is a famous and successful Israeli artist, called Michal Hyman. She's a known name yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I uh, took me time, but I convinced her to become like a private mentor, like in the Middle Ages, where artists uh, studied by uh, sitting by the side of a big uh, artist and learning from him. So for one year, I sat with her once a week on Thursdays at five o'clock, her studio, and she was teaching me art. And mm. She asked me at the beginning, what do you want from me? I said, I want you to teach me art. She took it seriously, and we were sitting, and I was uh, listening mostly. And she gave me, of course, uh, all kind of projects and uh, homework that I had to fulfill, and she was uh, uh, criticizing, giving me critique on my work, whether good or bad, and so forth. And for one year, I worked with her. And after one year, I came to the conclusion, no, it's not enough. I have to learn <laughs> more. I need uh, deeper uh, diving here. And I uh, uh, enlisted to uh, Israel, uh, one of Israel's better uh, art schools. There are, the famous one is Bezalel in Jerusalem. I still have a bit of, a, how would I say, uh, bad feelings about them because they were not accepting students older than 35. They were limiting the age of the students. Which yeah, you I, have a word for it, no? I, Age, uh, ageism. Yeah. Uh, it's ageism. It's uh, just like gender. I mean, we are living in times where it doesn't, it should be totally illegal, but that's what Bezalel, I think it's still doing, by the way. The second best school was the Midrashah in Bet Berl, yeah. and they are in Tel Aviv, which is also easier for me because I live in the Tel Aviv area. So I enlisted there, and I uh, graduated in 2008. And you three studied years. for I did, three years. I studied yeah. for three years, uh, photography and art. Art, art okay. by my main was photography. And uh, yes, and I became an artist photographer. So, uh, and that's something I have great passion for. So you mentioned that you have this, you had or have had this uh, passion for, for movies since you were very young, uh, at a young age. Where did it come from? this passion for movies? I mean, did you see it at home? Did you, I mean, this passion for art? Well, that is a question which is very hard to answer. I can try to answer at least part of this. My late mother was a painter. And uh, the house I grew up uh, in with my parents uh, had uh, a passion for art and a lot of respect for culture in general. My father was a pediatrician, but he, his side thing, his hobby was history. 
and he wrote a book about history, a very serious and deep book called Who Were the Phoenicians? So my parents were visiting museums and uh, our house was full of books, art books and uh, history books and uh, literature. And, uh, so you were surrounded and you had I was surrounded by uh, culture, I may say. I was lucky enough to be surrounded by such parents. So that is maybe part of the answer, influence. But I'm not sure that this is the only one. The attraction, uh, I don't remember my parents going to the movies so much. Nearly not at all. If at all I would remember them, or I do remember them, my father usually totally in a book. He's always with a book. At that time there was no TV yet. And uh, at a later point, TV came already into our lives, but they were not really sitting. Uh, later on, when my, pa- uh, my parents got older, they were also hung on TV. But uh, before, no, they were always with a book or my mother painting or doing something. My attraction to the movies, I don't know, through the, the whole environment, our, my friends, uh, kids at school, we were going to the movies together. The movies was a big deal. It was a big thing. And we were going to the movie theater quite a lot. Do you have a and favorite uh, movie? If I have one. If uh, you needed to choose one. No, I wouldn't do that. It's not uh, right to do because it's not. Uh, I have many favorite movies and they are uh, really superb uh, movies. And I still go to the movies, by the way. And I enjoy it, and I even uh, write sometimes critique on uh, on a specific movie I saw on my Facebook. I, I post yeah. a, a critique on Facebook, and uh, recently I saw some very good movies. The names are always uh, a problem because I tend to forget the names. But uh, a long history, of course, there were, you know, the, the So Italians. it's not it's not a wonder that you are also married to a, an artist. I saw the jewelry that your wife creates, beautiful. More of a statue than just a jewelry. I don't know. I really don't know, you know, what creates attraction between a couple to, uh, to fall in love and, and get married to each other <laughs> is a complicated subject, and I don't know the answer. Yeah, I definitely uh, don't uh, know. Uh, so, uh, uh, you know, we are together already for, uh, since 1971, so it's a lot. Uh, quite some time. It's quite some time. Yeah. Uh, at that time, she was not uh, really doing, but apparently she was attracted to it. She's a sculptor, yeah. and she's a jewelry designer, and there's no difference between the jewels and the sculptures, which are big. A sculpture can be a few meters in size, I mean, very big, and uh, her jewelry are small sculptures, very small, the one, the type yeah. that you wear on your finger very beautiful around your neck the one that I uh, saw so she appreciates I'm very lucky with that because when we are traveling we go and enjoy museums and galleries together uh, she again I'm extremely lucky also that she fell in love as well with photography and she's an excellent photographer we travel quite a lot worldwide and we usually both carry serious cameras with us and we both take pictures so, so, so I have a question it. over here yeah why did you choose photography over other mediums in art? I always enjoyed photography. I cannot answer the question. I don't know the answer. Partially, maybe I do. Uh, I have two left hands. I'm not good at painting, and I uh, never tried uh, or never been good uh, sculpturing. didn't attract me so much, although I appreciate immensely good sculpturing. I, I can appreciate 
a good work of art, whether sculpturing or painting and so forth. Uh, maybe it's the combination that the camera bring together both the ability to, to create images and the technology advancement in a camera. I always attracted to technology and technical advancements. I can say one thing about photography, which I keep repeating and maybe boring my wife by saying it, but uh, photography to me is a miracle. It's a total miracle. I'm always again and again and again, although I've been doing this for so many years already, I, I used to, f- to take pictures since I was bar mitzvah, since I was 13. So uh, it's only in the, after 56 that I started doing it more professionally and more into the art direction. But taking pictures, I started as, as a child. Very young age, yeah. yes. Still today, I look at uh, taking a picture as a miracle. I mean, there are two big miracles which I'm always astounded by. One is flying, you know, getting yeah, on an airplane. I feel and the seeing same. This, this huge bird with hundreds of people taking, I mean, so heavy. And I understand the physics of it. I understand the, the, like the mechanics and I understand the, the wind. and the, I completely understand the avionics of how an airplane is flying. And I'm still astounded and uh, blown away by, by the fact that such a big bird with uh, tons of metal is flying up in the air. Uh, what is the second miracle? Uh, the, the first one is the camera. Okay. They're taking a picture where you are basically putting in a print mode a moment, it's not a moment, it's a millisecond uh, fraction of a life where, that you are you know, pushing a button and you are... Uh, basically freezing a moment in life for eternity, probably for eternity, and not surely, but probably. Uh, That's an amazing, that's a miracle. So I want to ask you, I want to ask you about this exactly, uh, one of these uh, miracles that uh, you created and kind of shooting this um, a moment. Because in your art, in at least some of your series, and in a second we'll talk about the others, but one of the series of photography that you actually created kind of relate to your business background. You created a series called Wall Street, and for someone that the IPO two companies, you know Wall Street ins and outs and its way of operating, but you chose kind of a critical point of view of Wall Street. I'm interested to kind of hear about this series, Wall Street, and, and why, why creating this? The series is made of seven photos uh, done with a large format camera, and they are stage photographs. And uh, yes, they express a major uh, criticism I had over the Wall Street practice or practices, which I encountered while being there. And uh, there were many things uh, during my interaction with Wall Street uh, that I didn't like, which I didn't appreciate. I really didn't like. Being a CEO, for example, you know, every investment banker at the time, large firms, uh, they had uh, two major sections, the analysts and the investment bankers themselves. Now, there is an inherent conflict between these two portions of the investment banking institute. Why? Because if the investment bankers are taking a company, your company, another company, public, they want people to buy the stock, right? And they want the analysts to write good things about the, the stock and about the company 
because if they will, uh, the analyst will say this is a sh- bad company, don't buy their stock. It's uh, against the interest of the investment banker that want to sell the stock. So the common saying at that time in Wall Street was that we have so-called a Chinese wall between the two departments. We are not allowed legally to talk with each other among the fence or the Chinese wall. And uh, as such, but I found that it's BS. It's not really true. I mean, <laughs> I believed, not that I found any proof, but I uh, sensed that they are talking to each other and uh, the relationship are problematic. And later on, when I did my photography series, I, I researched the term Chinese wall, what are you using? So obviously in the eye of the, you know, the layman, a Chinese wall is something extremely solid, very thick, very big, right? That's also BS. I mean, it's not really such a solid wall as, a, as the image of uh, or the imagination of people. So even the investment banking uh, definition of Chinese wall is based full on something which is uh, uh, based on a, on a wall full of holes. It's not a real thing. And by the way, one of my pictures was the Chinese wall and uh, trying to show. And in, in my Chinese wall, you have uh, two, a few people sitting in a movie theater looking on yeah. a screen. And they are, what do they see? They see the World Trade Center as a metaphor of the Chinese wall. Why? Because I found out that, you know, in history, on the recent history as well, uh, big governments, rulers, uh, kings, uh, and, and so forth, dictators, and so forth, always try to b- build something bigger and bigger and bigger. And uh, it goes in history and it goes now as well. Even in our times, you have... So the Chinese wall was something huge, but also the trade center was something to be proud of as the highest and the tallest building uh, on earth. As solid as it was, the Twin Tower fell down, unfortunately. Terrible tragedy, and we're not going to go into this. But so the Chinese wall was. Uh, so we can we can uh, probably show so those work in our website after our conversation. Okay, it sure. will be uh, one of the photos that I also like is the black knight and uh, white knight. But I'm interested. Okay, you chose the topic because you knew the the Wall Street and you had your critical aspect. But I wonder how do you choose your subjects? How do you choose? Well, in that which? case, in that case, maybe I should really finish. I'm sorry, I am talking maybe too long, but uh, you ask why did I do this series in the beginning I had a lot of criticism on Wall Street I was pretty upset with some of the things which I thought were immoral practiced by Wall Street and then I was thinking like many CEOs and so forth to write a book and tell about my experiences and uh, some of the bad experiences too and then I said I'm going to write a book I have quite a few friends which were CEOs of successful company, more successful, less successful, who wrote books. Who the hell is reading these books? I mean, their friends are buying it. It's not, I mean, it's not common that a good, a, a, such a book is being, uh, becoming a bestseller. And I thought, I'm going to write a book. Uh, a few hundreds, maybe a few thousands will read it. People will not know. I want to point my view and uh, raise my view in a different way not by a book, but maybe by something that will raise or get more attention. By the way, I was wrong. 
it didn't get more attention. It got some attention, mostly in Israel, not so much in the U.S., and not so much elsewhere. So I was not right. So writing a book is not good enough, but also... So that's why I, I, I decided to create a stage photography series on Wall Street. Okay, I mean, some of those photos we will publish uh, on our website so people can see. Uh, personally, I like a lot the uh, White Knight and uh, Black Knight, which also terms coming from Wall Street. So I want to go back to this question because you obviously have different series of photography. And now I wonder, how do you choose to start a series? It's a lot of experimenting and curiosity and uh, coincidence. These are the three terms I would use in how it starts. For example, the box. I'm not going to go into the details of how it came into being, but I, by coincidence, was at a point where there was something similar to the box, but it wasn't a box, and uh, I liked what the result was, and then I decided to create, by carpentering myself, uh, a wooden box, which I started carrying with me in different locations. Different boxes, different materials. Different boxes, different materials, uh, whether wood or glass or metal, and in different locations, different uh, weather conditions, and, and so forth. A lot of experimentation and uh, trial and error, uh, basically. And those uh, photos we can also put on the website. Yeah, for sure, sure. So, you know, you mentioned kind of uh, one characteristic, you mentioned curiosity. And before we go deep into curiosity, I wonder, are there different uh, characteristics that are essentials for both uh, are the artist and the entrepreneur? Some for sure. I'm not sure that everything uh, is similar. Maybe I'll start with uh, some differences, not okay. similarities. Uh, I wanted to say that entrepreneurs usually are... And we'll discuss why entrepreneurs are entrepreneurs and why a real entrepreneur is doing what he's doing. Uh, but definitely part of it is uh, economical-based. Uh, Success, being an entrepreneur, is by, say, taking a company uh, that has a successful product, futuristic product. It is successful with the public. It, it goes public. And there's a lot of financial returns to the entrepreneur himself. Artists usually are less motivated by economy. Again, some artists which are very successful, they will have tremendous return by uh, successful art. We know that and we know names. I think within the art community, you see less drive that is motivated by money. Entrepreneurs are more uh, motivated by money, although it is also true to say the real good entrepreneurs, this is not the number one uh, driver. This is not the number one driver. This is a side effect for them. This is something they want to either change the world for reasons that are a big subject, to solve some problems. They want to prove to themselves or to their fathers uh, (laughs) how good they are. Uh, No, I'm not joking. Many entrepreneurs are... Frustrated kids of uh, very, uh, there were some studies about that on the fathers that were uh, always critical of them, and they always feel that they need to prove something to their father, even if he's not existent anymore. But they want to show, look how successful I am, 
uh, you always said that I'm not good enough and uh, I will not uh, succeed and this and that and and so many entrepreneurs have this uh, this drive entrepreneurs uh, want to uh, they like to lead they like to change they're very curious people they're interested in things so what are the similarities because you sp- start to speak uh, and I see well, similarities the, similar, the similarities are the ability of uh, trial and error going into the direction of trial and error curiosity I think is also similar the artist is always trying I mean he, both of them are starting with a clean slate with a, a basically a white canvas and they need to decide what am I going to do now I mean you sit in front of this white canvas with your uh, paints and your you about usually you will also see that most famous artists always also work by series artists photographers uh, usually they have series so uh, a painter for example or a sculptor you will always see a certain series of works not just a single one and then later something entirely different so something intrigued him something intrigued him to start a certain uh, direction a certain uh, You know, a way of seeing, if you look at Van Gogh, if you look at the Impressionists, and uh, they made a change compared to the ones that were before the Impressionists. And gradually you see the development. Uh, if you look at uh, modernism and postmodernism, it's always something that is uh, coming into mind after a lot of trial and error and a lot of thinking. Entrepreneurs are similar in that respect. You are looking around you, You're looking at uh, different directions and uh, taking uh, making two plus two uh, trying to see how you can uh, make it into a five not just a four so as I mentioned photography it was chemistry and and uh, physics or if you look at viruval uh, with the HIV it was the ability of seeing the creation of uh, the machines for synthetic peptides which is something entirely new and on the other hand the virologist that uh, succeeded in se- uh, sequencing uh, the structure of the HIV virus those were two very famous mm-hmm. virologists one from France uh, Luc Montagnier and Rob, uh, Bob Gallo in the United States so bringing these two totally different ones suddenly enabled you to create uh, a new virus product uh, or... product uh, for diagnostics of AIDS if so, you look at vocal tech then suddenly the emergence of IP enabled the emergence of uh, ability of digitizing voice and using algorithms to basically compress that voice into small amounts of data that can be shipped or sent over a large area uh, networks uh, wide area networks and And suddenly it has the IP which is uh, common everywhere and now you can take and send voice uh, from one continent to the other and uh, now you can speak over whatsapp or a messenger by Facebook so I want to say I mean you mentioned trial and error and you mentioned curiosity and I'm wondering I'm often being asked can someone develop actually curiosity and is it even possible to develop curiosity I don't know I have five grandchildren who And I'm trying always to raise their curiosity. And How I do you do it? By taking books uh, for kids, which uh, has interesting subjects, obviously interesting for me, 
So I'm taking biology, uh, zoology, robotics, uh, all kinds of things. And you see among my grandchildren, which are the oldest, 16, and the youngest, uh, three. And they're five altogether. They have their own natural interest in specific areas. I have one, the, she's nine, and she has tremendous, she loves dogs since day one. She's the whisperer to the dogs. Uh, she's amazing with dogs. Uh, more than, I mean, among the other five, you have others that are in, uh, infatuated or, or, or like dogs, but not like her. She, since she was a baby, she was with the dogs all the time, and it seems she speaks with them and they speak with her. And now, uh, a week ago, I uh, visited them. We are basically meeting uh, every week. And she showed me a book about zoology and biology. And she showed me a book about cockroaches and about all kinds of, uh, of uh, insects. And uh, she had tremendous interest in those insects. And I started, I was in the biology class in high school. And I always was attracted to biology. And she shows the same pattern. It seems natural. It doesn't seem that anybody in her family, uh, her parents, or anybody pushed her that direction. I have another grandson. He is into robotics. He is very much into robotics and, uh, you know, the space and the space. So it's natural curiosity. It's natural curiosity, yes. Now, you probably can enhance that to some extent, but I'm not sure that it's not natural. Okay. You know, Picasso said that every child is an artist. The problem is how to remain an artist when we grow up, and, and part of it is curiosity. And in previous conversation, you actually said that, you know, it's the, the education system that kills it, this natural curiosity. And that's why I'm kind of interested to understand how, if it, even if it's possible to develop it, but maybe you try to do something else because you taught uh, a course on entrepreneurship and uh, sorry creativity in business and art for business school students so you actually try to merge the disciplines and just like you said at the beginning often innovation or creation happens when we actually connect the unconnected can you tell us more about this course why you actually taught this course and what you were trying to transmit in this course Uh, sure I remember the natural evolution of how this happened. Uh, I was invited by uh, different business schools in the past uh, quite a few times, maybe many times, to discuss things about the companies I was involved, uh, mainly vocal tech, which was a business case in the, in the Harvard Business School and uh, elsewhere, other places too. And uh, at some point... After years that I was uh, doing that, here in Israel, I was once asked by a professor at, in one of the business schools if I, could, uh, if I would agree again to come and discuss things about vocal tech. And I said, no, I'm, uh, it's boring. Uh, I'm a guy who gets bored quite easily, and uh, enough is enough. But if you wish, this was in, uh, towards the end of 2006, which means I was already one year at, in uh, art school. So I said to her, if you wish, I am willing to do something else. I am uh, willing to give a workshop, 10, 12, 14 meetings to business school students about creativity in art and business. Now, why did I mention that? 
And that came to me kind of instantly. I met her in a social event and she asked me if I would come and speak and that was my answer. And uh, to my, uh, I was totally terrified when she came back and she said that the dean accepted and they will give me the time for a workshop a whole semester for students. Now I had to think really seriously, what am I how going, going to, to do, do that? that? I'm, yeah. How I'm going to do that? No, but uh, there was a base idea there. In art school, they were teaching you how to deal with uh, the white canvas, which I was uh, talking about earlier. Uh, so, uh, and there are even books, uh, Julia Cameron, uh, The Artist Way, There's, it's a famous book. And uh, she also is uh, trying uh, to uh, provide artists or artists-to-be uh, ways of how to enhance your creativity. So, for example, one thing she said there is keep a little uh, notebook next to your bed and the uh, first thing you wake up in the morning, write down your dreams. Your dreams are an interesting source of subjects for your next art project, okay? So simply write it down. Uh, they teach you in, you know, art has been there for hundreds and maybe thousands, not maybe, thousands of years. And artists had developed over the years ways of enhancing their own creativity. Of course, we said earlier that creativity is something which is also characteristic you're born with or not, but you can enhance it. Uh, everyone can enhance it. So if you are very talented and you will enhance it, you will become even better. But even if you're not very talented with your creative abilities, you can still enhance it by going through some exercises. So, for example, this thing of uh, writing your own dreams in the morning, because everybody knows you forget the dreams half an hour later. You wake up, at the, initially you say, whoa, what a dream, I, what a nightmare, I, what this and that. And, uh, but uh, if I'll ask you an hour later, you forgot it. So writing it down right away before you are even getting out of bed is an important thing to do. Because then those ideas, which are usually quite strange or crazy or whatever, so I decided I'm going to take some of those exercises expressed by Julia Cameron or by the, my teachers in art school, and I will bring them into, into, the into the business side and see. Now, there were a few notions in the base of that idea. One notion was that uh, everyone has some level of creativity, okay? Some people less. So I wanted first to select my students uh, by interviewing b before accepting them into class to see that they have a minimal uh, creativity capabilities. If they're totally, you know, uh, uh, square-minded, I don't want them in my class, to be honest. It's but, unusual uh, to actually interview your students and not allow everyone to register. Uh, I, that's what I uh, did, and that's exactly what the dean said to me that I'm the first uh, so-called so teacher at school there that did that, because other... They want as many uh, students as possible in class. I limited it to 25 because I had exercises to do and I need to check those exercises. I cannot have uh, uh, hundreds of people in my class. Uh, registration was uh, fantastic, but I did interview every one of the students. And I asked them, uh, you know, it was a five to ten minute interview with each one, not more. I wanted to know if they read books, what kind of books, if they see movies, if they have any hobbies, what kind of hobbies they have, what is their interest. Uh, I asked them, for example, uh, one question which was always interesting. I asked my students uh, at the interview level, before accepting them, 
you just got an, a phone call and apparently or a letter uh, you had an unknown uncle who uh, died passed away and left only you an inheritance of a hundred million dollar what do you do are you you are now in uh, business school Thir- uh, second year third year uh, obviously I asked you why are you in business school and most of them answered to make money but now I just gave you uh, the answer you just got a hundred million dollar so that means you have enough money for you for your kids and for your grandkids so you're not st- are you staying in business school because you said you want to make money and that now you have money so why would you stay what would you do the answers were amazing were amazing absolutely amazing why because nine out of ten said no no I am not gonna stay and I'm not gonna say so what are you gonna do uh, I'm going to study art I'm going to uh, play the piano I'm going to You know, Everything every one of them uh, had something and wanted to do things which had to do with the right side of the brain, not the left side of the brain. Something in the spiritual side of things and not on the uh, material side of things. Now the material has been, uh, you know, settled. I got a hundred million dollars. It was amazing to see how each one of them had other motives in them. This was a good answer for me. I mean, those that uh, want to make money as a part of... And then at class, I was, you know, the final test or exercise for them was, you bring me towards the end of the semester, one work done in any form you want, a photograph, a poet, a piece of music, something, prose you, you wrote. I mean, any uh, painting, uh, paint, uh, sculpture, you do whatever you want. And bring me something that will express an emotion. Just express an emotion. The and they needed, they needed they, also to explain why they did what they did? Yes, but only after the, the, the work they've done, uh, which was uh, basically displayed in class and discussed by the whole students before they explained yeah, yeah. what they did. And, uh, uh, and we, uh, me, the professor... And then the other students had to see, look at the photograph and understand why sadness is what is being expressed. Now, if you take emotions like sadness, like happiness, like jealousy, like uh, anger, any one of the emotions, and try to think how you would express it, not in a most uh, obvious way. Obvious, yeah. Uh, this is easy, you know. If you will show me a photograph of somebody trying to stab someone else, obviously you're showing uh, hatred and, uh, and uh, I don't know, jealousy maybe a little bit or so. No, show me more subtle ways. The works that the students brought back were amazing. I showed that in the school to other professors in the school, and the school then decided they're going to make an exhibition out of these works. The, the works were amazing. So they made an exhibition, and then someone from the school invited art critics from the press, mm. you know, the general press. <laughs> and they came, and there were critics in the general press in Israel about this art exhibition by students of business. It was amazing to see. It was really, to me, it was a huge satisfaction. I was yeah, uh, really enjoying it. I agree. It. But uh, it was fun. So unfortunately, we are running out of time, and I want to kind of ask you maybe one last uh, thought, comment, maybe tip, recommendation. 
many of the things that I do actually relate to the world of entrepreneurship and business. I want to hear from your perspective, why would you recommend uh, business professionals to actually get to know artists, get to know art, get to know the way they think in their world? I think it's really very important for business people. I'm not saying entrepreneurs. I'm saying business people, which has in the term business people, there are some that are entrepreneurs and some that are more professional business people that are good operators or things like that. I think for them to understand the humanistic uh, sciences, including art, it's not just art, but uh, basically... It's all kinds of arts. It can be literature, it can be music. Can, but understanding what motivates uh, artists and understanding how art is being expressed and developed is something that will develop their own creativity. I think it's very important because, you know, uh, uh, some of the exercises I did with my students in uh, class for creativity in art and business, uh, it was uh, showing a specific... I brought into this class also... Uh, important entrepreneurs and ask them to give examples of problems they had during their business life which they solved in a creative manner not in a natural manner so for example I was asking my students tell me, uh, you are running a startup and you ran out of money and you have to raise additional capital how would you do that in a creative manner meaning Creative is not going to the venture capitalists. This is, uh, and, uh, you know, selling them. That's a normal way. That's not creative. Yeah. I want you to bring me an idea which is totally out of the box, how you can raise additional capital by, uh, this is one example. So these are things which you will learn by understanding other way of thoughts. And art is very good at teaching yeah. you other ways of thought. Yeah, I always say that art is an open-ended and what's beautiful is that it shows you reality of life is that there is, for every problem, there are multiple solutions. Elon, I wanted to say uh, big thanks for taking the time and oh, coming sure. uh, over here pleasure. and uh, sharing all your thoughts and experiences. And with that, thank you very much, uh, uh, our listeners, to joining us and hearing this intersection of art, entrepreneurship, photography, science, and creation. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Nir. I always enjoy the interaction with you. Uh, you are a unique person and your <laughs> understanding of things that not too many people unfortunately understand and promoting it and art and uh, creativity into the business world is something I am uh, very much in favor of, as you uh, obviously understand. And I think you're doing a phenomenal job. So thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. We are producing our podcast without any ads, and we are relying on our community's direct support, people like you, our listeners. So if you find it valuable, I will be super grateful if you could spread the word by leaving a rating and maybe a review. It will take you just 30 seconds to do so, and it is very helpful in getting these ideas to a wider audience. If you are interested to develop your artistic mindset, if you are looking to grow your business, if you want to develop the innovation competencies in your organizations, I will highly recommend you to check our workshops and trainings, all available on our website. This episode was recorded from Google for Startups Creator Studio in Tel Aviv. Check out Google for Startups website 
to learn more about their support for entrepreneurs. The episode was mixed and mastered by Daniel Duran. You can subscribe to the Artian Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Our previous shows are available on our website, www.theartian.com slash podcast. Each episode includes show notes, guest recommendations, videos, and other materials. We can also be found on our LinkedIn page, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And you can reach us directly via email at podcast at theartian.com. So I will be waiting here for you in the next episode with me, Nir Hindi. Once again, thanks for listening.